Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Top in Tech. This is Global Council's monthly podcast and my name is Conan Darcy, Senior Practice Director at Global Council for Tech, Media and Telecoms. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Max Von Thun, my colleague who's an Associate Director based in our Brussels office. Max, amongst many other things, leads our analysis of employment frameworks and how they relate to the tech sector. I'm also delighted that my colleague Bart Miners will be having his debut on the pod this week. Amongst the various things that Bart focuses on includes the audiovisual sector, the reform of broadcasting rules, and what that means for streaming services. And thankfully, those are the two issues we're going to cover today. So Max is the author of a major report that we published last month that focused on the future of work and very specifically business views on the future of work. So Max is going to lead us through a conversation about what he found and what that might mean for policy. On the second part of the conversation, Bart is going to take us through his learnings and his conclusions from following the reform of the broadcast sector in the UK. We'll expand that out a bit to some of the European environment as well and assess whether there's any interplay between those two regulatory frameworks. So let's get started. Max, we'll start with the future of work. So looking at your report, you surveyed around 200 global business leaders the issues that you covered ranged from hybrid working to the role of technology and surveillance technology in the workplace, as well as the role of automation and what the impacts might be for the economy, for businesses and for workers. I'd like to jump into just a few of the key findings, some of those key stats that you found in that survey and some of the conversations that you had with businesses. So the first one is around hybrid working. For anyone who's based in the UK, You'll be very familiar that we have a very particular debate in the UK where both the Prime Minister and a senior cabinet minister, Jacob Rees-Mogg, have been in public calling for workers to come back to the office to the point where Jacob Rees-Mogg has actually left notes on the desks of civil servants who weren't at their desk when he was going around to survey what the attendance was. In your report, you find that 90% of businesses say that the future of work is actually hybrid working which seems to contravene what Mogg and Johnson have been talking about. So are they like Canute trying to turn back the tide? Are they essentially a bystander when it is businesses and the corporate sector that will ultimately determine where we're going on this issue? Thanks, Conan. Uh, and I think the image that you've picked there of Canute holding back the tide is, is very apt. I think, as you, as you say, what really came out in our survey is that businesses definitely see the future of work as hybrid. As you say, 90% of them see that as the right approach uh, compared to the other 10% uh, who felt it should be either entirely remote or uh, entirely in person. But I think even more interesting, and this really came out with the interviews that we did to complement the survey, is that business leaders want that to be driven by the market. So they think that you know, it should be ultimately businesses and, their, that, and employees that are deciding how people work and when they work uh, and not government. And so I think what that really means is you know they don't want government coming in and and telling them that people need to be in the office all the time or or that people should be working remote so and so number of days a week but where they do potentially value the role of government is in smoothing that transition to hybrid working uh, and there are a number of ways that that could happen uh, but when it comes to things like employment law health and safety law uh, and things like cross-border working, they definitely see the need for new new rules and arrangements to make it easy for hybrid working to to become the norm. Okay, well, let's let's go into that a bit further because the thing that really struck me from your report when I looked at the opening set of 
key statistics was just how much support there was for regulatory intervention, cross-border coordination that would allow for international agreements to facilitate cross-border working. Now, we all know people who uh, will have worked in other countries during the pandemic. And clearly, this is a response to developments along those lines where people are trying to trying to understand, can that continue in a new form? We've seen the proof of concepts and why not legalize it so people don't incur tax problems or other issues related to that. Um, so what do you think? Is an international agreement here actually something that we might see, or is it just a bit of a pipe dream that's going to fizzle out? So I think to start with, I would say that in general, employers aren't, aren't opposed in principle to the idea of their employees spending, the, spending some time working in different countries, uh, particularly in kind of service jobs where actually in-person presence isn't that important all of the time. Um, but as you say, there are a number of challenges which this raises. You mentioned tax. And that is a key one, given individual countries have their own have their own rules on how how income and business activity is taxed. But this actually touches on on a whole range of issues beyond that, including uh, immigration status and the uh, rights to work locally that you get through that uh, local employment rights and entitlements, which might be activated if someone spends a certain amount of time in a in a jurisdiction. Uh, even things like when we're thinking about tech regulation, data protection rules. You know if uh, you are based somewhere else and you're accessing data from your company that's based in your home country, is that compliant with data protection rules? Uh, and it, uh, there are other things like insurance rules and pensions and much more. Um, and a lot of that really uh, hasn't been clarified because uh, this sort of cross-border working uh, is very much a new thing and then arose uh, kind of by accident in response to the pandemic. Um, in terms of the prospect for agreements, I mean, there's been very little so far. We saw a couple of deals between EU member states during COVID, for example, between France and Germany or Belgium and the Netherlands, um, which were temporary measures essentially designed to respond to the fact that uh, certain people were working in their home countries despite being employed in their neighboring country, often because of travel restrictions. And those countries wanted to avoid any kind of regulatory issues arising from that. But these are all expiring now as the, as the kind of pandemic uh, fades into the past. Um, when it comes to more permanent deals, I think we may see we may see, see some new agreements there, but there are a number of things that will limit uh, how far that's able to go. I think a key one is that governments um, will be concerned about potential loss of tax revenues or local economic spending if employees in their countries are going going from, say, Germany or the UK to Spain and Italy. Um, whereas I think the recipient countries will be will be keen to lure those workers. Uh, there's a bit of a zero sum issue in terms of how those countries negotiate on that. I think there's also a risk that if it becomes too easy to employ someone from uh, another country, you could see businesses moving to jurisdictions where, let's say, tax law tax obligations are quite light or where employment rights are quite minimal uh, in an attempt to kind of reduce the regulatory burden. And you could see this kind of almost what you've seen with corporate tax payments and move towards certain jurisdictions would be a problem. Um, so I think uh, I'm not sure we're going to see a huge prol proliferation of agreements in this area in the years to come. It's an interesting one. I mean, when you, if you think of policy decisions like a set of scales, what you've just set out there sounds like the, the negative is significantly weighing down uh, the potential policy, policy positives in the eye of um, policymakers. There's also an interesting, as you talked through that, it was evoking in my mind 
uh, Theresa May's Citizens of Nowhere speech. And this seems very much one of those sort of policy pursuits that could be unfavorably uh, depicted as prioritizing people who are already pretty wealthy, uh, already have uh, flexible travel and ability to, to get around the world uh, at the expense of other policy goals that may or may not be uh, more important. Um, so let's just um, move away from that issue around remote, hybrid working, whatever, whatever we want to call it. And I think what sort of comes out also from your report, beyond those sort of facilitations, which I think is what you're talking about, businesses are looking for government to facilitate things rather than intervene. Generally speaking, the idea of major interventions from government into the labour market is not seen as a favourable um, prospect in most cases in your report. The one exception, though, um, that jumps out from here is just how AI and other technology are used within the workplace. And it's clear that businesses have some form of nervousness around how that is deployed. It's not clear whether that's nervousness in how they are doing so in their own business or how they are seeing practices in other places. But clearly there's a, there's a general consensus that we need to be a bit cautious here and government needs to play a clear role. So what do you think businesses are actually looking for? I mean, we, on the EU side of things, we have the AI Act, we have the Platform Workers Directive, both of which would sort of stray into this area around uh, governing how businesses can use technology to regulate recruitment, but also uh, employment practices. So could you just expand for listeners a little bit about what, what, what we're seeing? Yeah, definitely. I think this was one of the most striking areas of our report uh, in terms of seeing the highest level of consensus among businesses, as you say, for the need for regulation to address issues. And it's probably worth taking a step back just to explain here what we're talking about when we're referring to uh, what we call digital monitoring and the use of AI, artificial intelligence in the employment relationship. Um, essentially, this refers to things like tracking your keystrokes or using a camera on your laptop to monitor your facial expressions, or even something more basic, like checking how many emails you've sent. But basically using technology, using technology to monitor how productive and potentially how motivated you are as an employee, um, and then potentially taking steps to, to address that if issues arise. Obviously, uh, I think many people would find that quite creepy and, and quite dystopic. Um, but the use of te such technologies has been increasing in recent years, particularly during the pandemic. You saw a bit of a, a burst, as, as we know, uh, people shifted to remote working and employers felt a need uh, to exert more control through technology over their employees, given it's harder to have oversight when someone isn't in the office. Um, and so our survey found that business leaders feel quite uneasy about these technologies. So around uh, three quarters of them felt that it was not an appropriate thing to use when it came to monitoring someone's performance. Uh, an even higher share, around 90%, felt that it wasn't right to use that kind of technology when making decisions around uh, firing people, for example. However, they, when asked about what we need to do about this, business leaders didn't want to go so far as to ban these technologies outright. So there was a sense that if used with moderation, such technologies can potentially actually improve transparency in the workplace uh, and, and you know, help increase productivity and so on. But they do see the need for regulatory safeguards to do something here. And so as you, as you mentioned, there are some initiatives, particularly the EU level, that try to address this issue of um, digital monitoring and automated decision making. And the two that I pick out are the um, AI regulation and then the platform workers directive. And I'll, I'll talk about them both 
briefly, um, but I think the kind of key takeaway is both would go quite a long way in addressing a lot of these issues. So the AI Act essentially tries to create at a European level what the GDPR did for data protection. So create kind of Europe-wide framework for regulating the use of AI. I think the key thing to highlight is it tries to uh, identify a set of uses of AI that it calls high risk. And in terms of the conversation we're having now, the most relevant one is uh, the use of AI in, in employment, which is, which is highlighted as high risk. And that includes things like allocating tasks to people monitoring their performance and so on. And what the AI regulation would do is impose obligations on the providers of that AI, uh, essentially to make sure that that AI is used fairly. So that would include things like uh, ensuring a certain quality of the data sets that are used to train those algorithms, um, undertaking risk assessments to make sure that um, to make sure that that AI isn't kind of causing causing issues or abuses that they're not aware of, uh, providing information to users, ensuring there's a level of ho- human oversight over these things. Um, and so I think all of that combined would ensure a certain degree of kind of uh, consistency uh, in how these how these tools are used and certain safeguards, which which would hopefully address some of these challenges we're talking about. Um, but the focus is is more on the kind of creators, the providers of that technology, rather than those affected by it. Uh, whereas the platform worker directive uh, is a separate piece of regulation, which is very much focused on on the gig economy. Um, and there, although narrow in scope in, in terms of who it focuses on, uh, it would provide more rights to the actual kind of individuals affected by these AI technologies um, by, for example, giving them, giving them information uh, when an automated decision is made that affects them, or giving them rights to a consultation with their employers when those algorithms change, uh, and potentially getting allowing that information to be shared with trade unions and so on. Um, so I think that would, combine with what we're seeing in the air regulation, uh, give individuals a lot more, a lot more ability to kind of understand what's going on with this, with this AI, and also challenge it. I think the key there is is that is only focused on on kind of gig economy workers, whereas ultimately what we're talking about in our report is these technologies being used across the whole economy. So it's unclear whether it'll uh, be comprehensive enough. Um, and I think one last point just to make coming out of our report is when we interviewed business leaders on these technologies, although, as I said, uh, overall, they were in favor of more regulation. There were a lot of concerns, particularly from technology businesses, about how you actually implement rules when it comes to algorithms. I mean, do regulators even have the right level of understanding to uh, actually ask for the data that they need? Once they have that data, how do they actually do anything with it? Um, Is there a risk that if you provide transparency on how algorithms work, you know, certain uh, users try and game the way that these platforms work and so on. So I think uh, while there's a desire to, to go down this path, I think businesses want policymakers to proceed with caution. It's interesting as well, because we've, we've talked a lot there around new pieces of legislation, but some of the aspects that you just described, particularly the Platform Workers Directive, cuts across other pieces of existing EU legislation. So if we think of the General Data Protection Regulation, which is the EU's data protection law, also applies. Uh, currently in the UK, there are rights to information around uh, sole automated uh, decision-making. So there's, there's already a body of law that can potentially be utilised for different types of workers subject to these types of uh, decision-making processes, which is where, Bart, I'd quite like to bring you in. Um, you've done a lot of work um, in the ride-hailing sector over the past year, and we've, we've come across this issue while, while keeping an eye on, on developments there. Could you just Talk 
through for listeners what's happened around this automated decision-making point with regards to ride-hailing sector and what's the outcome and the wider significance of it? Of course, yeah. And uh, if I could, I'd like to start by saying uh, thank you. And uh, it's great to be joining you and Max for, uh, for my debut on the Top & Tech podcast. So as you say, uh, employee monitoring in the ride-hailing sector has become uh, increasingly controversial. Uh, as Max mentioned just now, workplace surveillance has risen dramatically over the pandemic across sectors. But as concerns the ride-hailing sector specifically, the most significant legal development in this area came in 2020 when the UK-based App Drivers and Couriers Union, the ADCU, launched a legal bid against Uber over its collection of data on drivers to inform automated decision-making and hiring and firing processes. Although the case revolved around a group of three UK drivers and one Portuguese driver, the legal claim itself was brought in the Netherlands, where Uber's European HQ is based. The ADCU's central contention in this legal case was that Uber had wrongly accused over a thousand drivers of fraudulent activity based primarily on automated ID verification and location tracking systems, terminating their accounts with no right of appeal and with no human oversight. Uh, the ADCU essentially claimed that this contravened their rights under Article 22 of the GDPR, which you just mentioned. Article 22 uh, requires active and meaningful human inputs to be factored into automated decision-making processes. Essentially, AI systems are only allowed to support or enhance fundamentally human decision-making processes. In 2021, the outcome of this legal case was announced when the court of Amsterdam ordered Uber to reinstate drivers dismissed by algorithm in the UK and pay damages to the claimants in the case. Since then, we've seen another legal case being brought in the UK against Uber's ID verification system, which, again, the ADCU claimed failed to identify two Asian drivers leading to their dismissal. While the verdict of that particular case hasn't yet been announced, momentum in Europe and the UK certainly seems to be turning against the use of automated decision-making processes without the involvement of human oversight. So we're, we, the ride-hailing sector is sort of at the cutting edge here. I mean, it does sort of reinforce the point that the safeguards of the GDPR do apply here. There's going to be a slightly complicated uh, application of how the AI Act uh, applies, how the GDPR applies, but also how the Platform Workers Directive applies to this sector, um, which will take an, uh, a fair bit of unpicking. I suspect what we're seeing here won't be the last legal cases that we come across on this issue and are likely to be tested uh, further, both in the UK, but also in the, the rest of uh, the European Union. So let's, we've, we've done two of your three issues, Max, from the report. Let's do the last one, automation. This is something we all talk about, evokes in people's minds, the idea of Terminator and uh, robots out of control. On a more anodyne um, basis, um, businesses seem to say in your report, nothing to see here. Move on. Don't look at us, Gov. I mean, to the extent they see a role for government, it's to help them fund skills programs, which you know, it's not the most original sort of input or insight from businesses. It's something that governments have focused on for quite a long time. And even in countries like Denmark, which has its sort of famed flex security model, which has a big focus on training and reskilling, you can only so far 
shelter workers from the impact of technological, demographic, and societal change. So I, I, all sort of a slightly long way of getting there, but do you think businesses are underestimating the societal impact of automation here, um, or do you think they've got it broadly right? So what we saw with our results when it came to the question of the impact of automation on society, and specifically we asked them whether they felt society was equipped to deal with that, is that businesses are pretty much roughly, pretty much split down the middle. Uh, so half of businesses think society isn't prepared, the other half do. Um, and actually, I would say that ambivalence more or less reflects what we're seeing in the academic and policy debate on this issue. So despite, you know, we're all familiar with them, kind of more than a decade of warnings about huge job displacement through robots and mass unemployment. Actually, we haven't really seen that so far, despite kind of increases in automation and artificial intelligence and so on. And actually, at the moment, as we know, labor markets are extremely tight and unemployment is very low. Um, so I think for now, businesses and the business leaders that we surveyed are right to see a focus on training and retraining uh, as the right policy approach to the question of automation at the moment um, as a kind of the best way of preparing uh, workers for for a potential upsurge in automation in the future. And, and that's generally how, how policymakers are responding in reality for the time being. Um, but I say that with the caveat that this could change very quickly. Uh, you know, technological developments aren't, don't necessarily proceed at a, a consistent pace. You can have sudden explosions in in new technologies, uh, you know, particularly artificial intelligence, some of the developments we're seeing in, in machine learning in terms of language generation, image recognition, and so on, that could start translating, you know, sooner than we think into uh, robots and kind of automated technologies that actually do replace a lot of jobs, including uh, in so-called white-collar occupations. And I think if we did get to that point, um, Investment in skills and retraining may not be enough. It may it may help to an extent, but we may see increases in unemployment that are just too large to be absorbed by that. And I think at that stage, policymakers would start looking at more radical measures, things like a basic income, for example, to help those uh, out of work replaced by robots, uh, or you know, people, including Bill Gates, have suggested a tax on automation to help redistribute some of those profits that are generated by automation. So we may see calls like that emerging. Um, Interestingly, though, when we did ask business leaders in our survey what they thought of those measures, they were generally all very unpopular. So again, other than investment in skills, we found any of these more uh, radical measures were, were very unpopular. So I think if it did come to that stage, that could lead to some, some tensions between the private sector and government. But I think for now, we'll have to wait and see. Interesting. I think there's also a question, not just of the scale of, so if we see mass joblessness, it's almost not necessarily the shift from employment say to automation i think it's also how that happens so does that happen as a does it happen in a gradual process where that is is seen to be less evident does it happen on in a big major headline industrial employer that suddenly moves to automation in quite a sharp way that brings that home to political and media audiences that 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 shaping i think will be quite important how you drive the political uh, and media debate so let's, um, let's conclude there. I can only encourage uh, our listeners to go to the Global Council website, um, look at our insights page, and you'll find uh, Max's report and plenty more detail there about all things future of work. 
So let's go on to the regulation of streaming services. We're going to focus particularly on the UK. We'll, we'll Europeanize it a, a little bit too. But there are a few things more politicized at the moment in UK political discourse than what to do with the broadcasting sector. There's two main issues on the table and they dominate the headlines. The media like nothing better than to write about or to talk about the media. So this is constantly in the newspapers, constantly uh, in the broadcast media. But the government wants to do two things. It wants to privatise Channel 4. And for those non-British listeners, Channel 4 is one of the public service uh, broadcasters within the UK. It's nationally owned, uh, but it's, it, it makes its own funding uh, via advertisements. Um, but there is a proposal to privatise it. Second is the BBC licence fee. The licence fee is the, essentially the, the levy to users um, a flat fee that is charged to all le- users of the BBC uh, when you use a television or indeed if you're using uh, BBC iPlayer. Um, that again is being questioned by uh, the government who see it as anachronistic and uh, believe there are new ways in which the BBC should be funded, particularly set against the rise of new competitors and streaming services. They're the headline issues, but actually but I, I don't want to spend too long talking about those. They're the context to our discussion today, where I want to go slightly under the radar. Within the media bill, which the government has announced it will bring forward, are provisions that are going to govern streaming services. We essentially will see Netflix, Prime, Disney+, Plus. these companies are going to face more regulation than they currently do now. So we're going to go into that, and Bart's going to lead that conversation. But Bart, before we jump into those details... I just want to, can you just give a sense to listeners, jumping out a little bit from that detailed discussion, what is the view, do you think, of the British government towards streaming services? Broadly speaking, are, are they seen as a good thing for the British economy and for British society? Well, so I think it's uh, unfortunately not quite as straightforward as that. The relationship between streaming platforms and the government is, I think it's fair to say, a complex one. On the one hand, the government has uh, absolutely hailed the so-called TV and film production boom taking place in the UK, the record £5.64 billion invested into visual media production in the UK last year, outstripped expenditure even in Hollywood. The industry tax breaks on offer for production companies are seen to be largely responsible for this Despite the fact they were introduced in 2007, they've certainly been held up as an example of a key government policy win. On the other hand, the government's April white paper on its vision for the broadcasting sector set out concerns over the impact of unfair competition between public service broadcasters like the BBC and Channel 4 and streaming platform competitors. PSB's alleged unsustainability against these global streaming platforms is being used by the government as justification for its uh, BBC reform proposals and indeed its proposals to go ahead with the privatisation of Channel 4. Elsewhere, these lingering concerns remain amongst policymakers about the government's lack of control over US streaming platforms, as indeed they do for US tech platforms more generally. Uh, The risk here, however, uh, is that streaming platforms are treated as a sort of political football in the debate over the future of PSBs, with their model being used as a stick to beat the BBC and Channel 4s with. So Nadine Doris, the digital and culture secretary in the UK, every time she's she's in Parliament, she's extolling 
the model, the subscription model of uh, Netflix in particular, um, as a reason for why Channel 4 and the BBC need to change. What you're sort of seeing in reverse is that every time Netflix share price falls, the opponents of Channel 4 privatization or the opponents of scrapping the BBC license fee are then almost taking a bit of delight in pointing out Netflix's commercial woes as part of that argument in rebutting Nadine Doris. So yet yeah, the, the streaming services are sort of finding themselves caught in the middle of this debate they don't really control, that they are clearly market participants in, but both sides are using them as examples for their own political reasons that aren't necessarily associated with them or their business model. Fine, so let's go into the detail. Um, the government, essentially, the key change they want here is the government wants to apply the Ofcom's code to streaming services. So just explain in very practical terms for listeners, what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, the government's media bill proposals, uh, which it set out in the Queen's speech, uh, as you say, revealed that Ofcom will be empowered to draft and enforce this new video on demand code, which is ideally going to be broadly comparable to the broadcasting code, which linear broadcasters have to comply with. At the moment, as you mentioned earlier, iPlayer is the only streaming platform operating in the UK, which has to comply with the broadcasting code. This new video on demand code is expected to introduce obligations on streaming platforms to bring them into line with those that these traditional broadcasters have to comply with. Some of those tougher rules will be easier to implement in practice than others. Uh, for instance, streaming platforms are quite likely to be expected to face new restrictions on content harmful to under 18s, content promoting hatred and abuse, uh, misleading public health advice and climate change pseudoscience, which really these platforms shouldn't have any substantial problems adhering to. But restrictions on more subjective content, such as content pertaining to elections and referenda, religion, news impartiality, uh, as well as the implementation of a watershed for services which are inherently available on demand, would certainly prove more problematic. Uh, so Ofcom is, is obviously very likely to bear these considerations in mind when it drafts this new code. Uh, while the government intends for the video on-demand code to closely reflect the broadcasting code, it has conceded that rules and guidance will have to be tailored to the specific requirements of the, the on-demand distribution model. So yeah, so if you take the watersheds and this is as an example, it will be hard to copy and paste the rules that currently apply to broadcasters with the watershed. So the watershed, for those who don't know on the line, is where you are not allowed to show certain types of explicit content before nine o'clock in the evening in the UK. So if you were to do that and apply that to on-demand services, you would essentially, in the same way it does to linear traditional broadcasters, that would mean that, I don't know, Disney Plus or Amazon Prime can't show a whole wad of their catalogue before 9pm. Clearly, that's not going to cut through. People will not be happy about that. There'll be a big consumer backlash. So what they'll have to do is some form of age, age verification uh, process. What that will be is to be determined. But that, I suppose that makes the point that you can't simply take the precise rules that apply to traditional broadcasters to on-demand platforms. You'll have to tailor them to achieve the same outcome. And I'm sure that's the argument that a lot of the streaming services are going to be making. 
So one other issue um, that's probably almost as old as debates around the watershed is just this idea of prominence. Anyone who's followed broadcasting debates slightly weary of this uh, discussion, which sort of never seems to go away. But basically, on standard TVs, providers like Sky are obliged to put terrestrial PSB content, so BBC, Channel 4, ITV and others, at the top of their listings so the viewers can find them more easily. There is a sense from the government's publications, from statements from ministers and others, that in the media bill, they want to apply this issue of prominence to the digital world. So what does, what, what does this actually mean, Bart? Does this mean if I try and download, uh, I don't know, Apple TV on my iPhone, that I'll get a prompt saying I should download the BBC iPlayer instead? Or is it that when I go onto my Sky TV, the first sort of app I'll see on the app element of that will be iPlayer or the ITV equivalent? I mean, what, what are we talking about here? It's quite practically for listeners. Uh, so the uh, the government hasn't been abundantly clear on its plans for prominence right. reforms under the media bill. Uh, but there are three key sort of possibilities here that uh, I'd like to walk you through uh, in responding to your question. The most likely scenario based on, uh, based on our, our current reading of these proposals is that these prominence obligations will be confined to smart TVs, which feature uh, streaming platform apps. Under this outcome, PSB apps like iPlayer and All4 would have to be displayed ahead of apps like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video uh, in these in-smart TV um, services. Uh, under the second less likely possibility, those obligations will be expanded to other devices like smartphones, where app stores might be required to display PSB apps ahead of those uh, from global platform competitors in searches. Least likely possibility based on current information is that streaming platforms themselves will be required to grant prominence to PSB content on their own services. But ultimately, what prominence obligations will look like in practice will only really become clear when the government publishes its draft media bill. Okay, so just on that last point then, what we're saying is if you open up uh, Netflix, then what you won't be able to do, what, you, what, what won't happen is that you would have BBC content on that first row as you, as you look up at it. So that, that's probably not going to happen. But I, I was just, while you were talking that, I was just thinking that the smart TV thing is not that simple either. If you think of a company like Sky, when you go on Sky TV and you do the search function there, they show results on individual programs for Sky, but also for Netflix. And then if you click on the Netflix one, then it takes you directly to the Netflix app. So what's going to happen there? Does that, that presumably is based on the commercial partnership between Sky and Netflix to allow Netflix to be as integrated as it is. So does that mean that there's going to have to be Sky content, then you should have BBC results, you have ITV results, you have Channel 4 results, and only at the bottom can you get Netflix. For, for a company like Sky, presumably, uh, that's a commercial revenue stream that's, that's going to be threatened or at least diminished uh, compared to what it is um, today. So look, we've been parochial enough uh, sitting in our office uh, in London. Let's, let's, let's uh, Europeanise the conversation and bring in Max. Um, is the UK alone here, um, not in the precise details of what it's talking about, because I mean, no, other countries don't have an Ofcom code as such, they'll have their equivalents, but is the trend towards greater regulation of streaming services across Europe? 
So rather than being alone here, I would say the UK is actually more of a laggard uh, when we're looking at the European picture in that we've already seen steps, particularly at the EU level, uh, to bring streaming services into the regulatory framework. First thing to highlight, perhaps the main show in town, uh, is what's known as the Audiovisual Media Services Directive. So this is actually quite an, an old piece of EU legislation, but which was revised in 2018 uh, to bring in to bring in video on demand uh, and video um, VSP, so video sharing platforms, into scope, uh, as well as broadcasters, which were already covered. Uh, and what it essentially does is it levels the playing field between those those broadcasters and these 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 more modern uh, platforms that I mentioned. So it ensures that streaming platforms, uh, many of which you were talking about, like Netflix and Disney Plus, have to uh, comply with certain rules on on harmful content, particularly when it comes to minors, uh, on making sure that isn't uh, illegal content on their on their platforms, like like terrorist uh, and sexual abuse content, uh, and also following certain obligations when it comes to uh, advertising. Um, and then the final key element of, of the legislation to flag is it involves legislation, uh, sorry, uh, obligations on the share of a platform's catalog that has to be dedicated to European content. So the AVMSD requires the likes of Netflix to have 30% of their catalog uh, consisting of, of European works, and that's defined uh, in the legislation. I think the interesting thing looking at the UK is that the UK actually had to implement this legislation um, because it uh, because it was sort of finalised uh, before after the Brexit vote before the end of the transition period. So it is it is on the statute books in the UK, um, meaning that with the media bill and the code that that Bart was talking about, um, you know, we aren't starting from. Uh, kind of square one. There are already some obligations on streaming platforms. I think what the UK government is doing is really going uh, above and beyond and adapting what we've seen in the AV MSD. Um, and then I think looking more at individual European countries, what we've also been seeing is governments taking steps to impose direct financial obligations on streaming platforms. So this is something that is not uh, required by the AV MSD, but is kind of encouraged to buy it through these requirements on having a certain share of your catalogue dedicated to European works, um, and and by sort of uh, creating a framework for governments to introduce these levies. And so what we're seeing in practice over the past few years is governments uh, trying to increase the financial contribution of streaming platforms to local uh, local content, particularly film and television. And there's sort of two main ways that this is happening. The first is through uh, kind of legal obligations to invest a certain share of their revenues into local content, be it be it film or or TV. And this can range from you know around twenty percent in in France to uh, a recently agreed four uh, percent investment obligation in Switzerland. The other path that countries are taking is to impose levies on streaming platforms. Denmark is a good example where they recently imposed a 6% levy uh, where that money is then put into a, a local film fund and can be used for, for local production. So I think ultimately they have a similar result in, in funding local content, but the mechanism is a bit different. And um, with the investment obligations, the streaming platforms have more choice in terms of what content they're, they're putting it into. They can still make commercial decisions about about what they want to fund, whereas when it comes to the levies, ultimately that money is then handed over as a pot to the public sector uh, and is used in that way. Um, but I think that sort of gives you a bit of a flavour of, of what we're seeing uh, on the continent. So I suppose that the, the overarching conclusion there is that if you are a, 
tech executive at one of these streaming services, let's say you're at Paramount Plus, which has just launched, the trend is very much consistent with other parts of the tech sector, which we talk about each month. More regulation uh, and more regulation, not only in uh, the EU level, at a national level, and also within the UK. It's interesting what you talked about at the end there. So if we think about what is happening, so France may be a bit of an outlier. The British politicians don't necessarily like to replicate France as a model for policy formulation. But there's other countries there. You mentioned Switzerland, Denmark, which possibly in a policy sense are culturally closer to the UK. They are moving forward with, with levies. And we have this debate here about how do we fund the BBC moving forward? The government has kickstarted this debate. So Bart, let's just conclude on this question. If BBC funding model is being reviewed, what's not to like if you're the government or if you're the opposition or other stakeholders or even the BBC? What's not to like about taxing the streaming services more and using that money to pay for the BBC? This is a policy option that is increasingly moving into the conversation quite significantly. Last month, the BBC's Director General, Tim Davey, told the House of Lords' Communications and Digital Committee that he would be open-minded about exploring alternatives to the BBC's licence fee funding arrangement. Uh, as I say, this, this was quite a substantial change in tone uh, for the BBC, which has traditionally argued against a shift being uh, made to the licence fee arrangement. Uh, and with that concession, it's likely that now the conversation will move on from whether a change should be made to what exactly that change might look like. Uh, many ideas have been circulated already, and one that has found some traction, as you say, has been the suggestion from former Culture Secretary, former Labour Culture Secretary, and BBC Director of Strategy and Digital, James Purnell, who proposed this idea of a streamer's levy. Uh, there's long been a belief amongst policymakers that uh, these global streaming platforms are undertaxed and also to its favour, a levy could increase the level of funding allocated towards the production of British TV and film content by PSBs. A levy proposal could actually become an even more credible proposition should a more pro-PSB Labour government be elected in or before 2024. Uh, that being said, there are concerns that will remain over the potential impact of a levy on platform investment in the UK. As I said earlier, um, the UK is benefiting from this uh, TV film and production boom, uh, as well as the proportion of proceeds going towards the TV and film industry rather than towards public finances more broadly. Uh, but with the BBC's midterm review due within the next two years, the prospect of a streamer's levy will uh, be included amongst the foremost potential licence fee alternatives under discussion. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because if you've, we're coming from a point where the government has actively, as you said at the start of this, actively given tax breaks to these companies to produce content in the UK. So the difficulty there is how do you square those tap breaks and that actually quite successful policy with the idea of then imposing a levy to fund the BBC, whereas Max said before, the problem with that type of levy for streaming services is they have no control over where that content goes. They, don't, you know, they won't know will the BBC produce, uh, spend it on X, Y or Z. So it's quite an unappealing uh, prospect and sort of almost giving a tax break with one hand and 
adding a tax with another is quite inconsistent policymaking. And you can see the Treasury already looking at this and having a number of questions and concerns, not only, like you said, that an increase in tax take on the tech sector, they'd prefer to have that probably in Treasury coffers than they would uh, in the financial balance sheet of uh, the BBC. Anyway, much to see. Uh, We'll track this debate very closely uh, over the coming years and months. And we'll keep our listeners updated, particularly if there are major developments as and when, I suppose, the bill uh, is tabled uh, within Parliament. So I'd just like to thank uh, Max. I'd like to thank Bart uh, for your contributions uh, today. And to listeners, um, as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to either the future of work and the, the changes which Max talked around earlier, or indeed you're active in the broadcasting audio visual sector and interested in developments around the future of the BBC, Channel 4, or streaming services, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can contact us using the contact details for Max, Bart, and myself. Uh, They're on the website, as are the contact details of our other colleagues in the tech, media, and telecoms practice. And you can find that at www.global-council.com, or you can find it via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next month. (laughs) 